Some years ago, a young man in his mid-30s walked into a church for the first time in his life. He was tall, dark-haired, strikingly handsome, and yet desperate. He walked into church and he sat down toward the back upon a friend's advice and he waited to hear what would take place. Had no idea what church was about, why these people gathered, really. But he was desperate and he needed help. His name was Robert Langstrom. The story of Robert's life was quite checkered. He lived in Southern California. And from his teenage years on up, he had become quite active in the gay uh, homosexual movement. And in fact, he rose in that organization of activism socially, politically, uh, way up to where he was actually involved in the planning of the marches that take place once a year in San Francisco and other places. But Robert now had AIDS. And at that time, the doctors had given him very little hope for much time left here on the earth. And the more he thought about his condition and thought about his predicament, the more aware he became of how afraid he was to die. So he went to church. A few moments ago, Terry read from us from Isaiah 55 where God says concerning his word and the sovereignty behind his word and his purposes that my word shall not proceed from my mouth without achieving the purpose for which I sent it. And so this young man sat toward the back of the church and he listened as the pastor came to the front and simply read the scriptures. And he read from one of the great Old Testament psalms. And one single verse in that psalm was riveting to Robert as he heard it. In fact, God seemed to just enclose him and encase him in that single verse of Scripture. And the funny thing is later, after he had come to know Christ and had been baptized, and on the night of his baptism, as he shared his whole testimony of his checkered and ungodly life, of the emptiness of his life, as he explained his background and then spoke of the night that evening service when he was drawn to Christ. And he said, I sat there, and from the moment that single verse of Scripture was read, I didn't hear anything else, except I heard announcements, I heard singing, I heard the pastor get up and preach a, a lengthy message. I heard none of that, none of that got in. 
only this single verse. And it just enveloped me. And he said, all I could do was sit there and wait, thinking to myself, I wish that guy would just shut up so I could come forward and do something about that verse. Well, Robert was wonderfully saved and restored to fellowship with Christ. His life was transformed and he became immediately enemy, enemy number one of that whole vast organization pushing for its immoral lifestyle. And yet he stood strong and bore witness in the, in the only a matter of a couple years that he had left. But he stood strong for Christ until God took him home. Well, this morning, I'm coming back to this psalm. It's been six or eight years since I preached on it. And I love coming to it because it is just such a significant psalm and so rich for the people of God and rich in terms of the redemptive grace and power of God. So I want you to see it with me. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 107 uh, in your Old Testament, Psalm 107. The dating of this psalm, most believe, is somewhere maybe around the 6th century B.C. And we might ask ourselves this morning, what in the world can a psalm that's 2,500 years old possibly have to say to us in 2021? Well, the eternal God who inspired it still speaks today. He spoke then when he inspired it, he, he, when it was written and preserved, and now we have it. Um, I've entitled the message this morning, A Psalm for Your Unsaved Friend, Even If That Friend Is You. Psalm 107. And I know that I could go into quite a bit of historical background regarding the psalm. I could explain how some of the psalm worked its way out in the, in the nation of Israel and how it literally came true. But just like this conviction I have, both the Old and New Testament, that any time there's a deliverance by God that is national or temporal, it is always, in addition, a picture of the eternal and everlasting deliverance that comes through the redemption that's in Christ. So I believe that, and so I'm not going to go diving into a lot of historical background because I want to get right into the meat of this psalm. The first thing I want you to see as you think about this psalm is the praise expressed by the psalmist for God's goodness, the goodness of God. In verses 1 through 3, follow with me if you would. The psalmist writes this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and has gathered them from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. 
And so right at the outset of this psalm is this expression of gratitude to God, this expression of praise to Him for redemption, for deliverance, for rescue. Now, He hasn't told us yet or illustrated rescue for us, but He starts by saying, if you're one of God's redeemed, say so. Don't hold it in. Don't hide it from others. Be grateful so that it overflows from your heart that I belong to Christ and I've been redeemed by him. And so, first, the praise for God's goodness. The second thing I want you to see as this psalm unfolds are portraits of God's goodness. In each portrait, God's goodness is seen in his mercy and in his deliverance. And he is given all the credit for it, as we will see. But as we walk down through these portraits, there are four of them that the inspired writer of this psalm puts before us. And this is poetry. And so these are word. He's painting a picture for us of the dire conditions of a person prior to God rescuing them, saving them, calling them out to himself. And he describes in picturesque language the difficulties and the hardships, the languishing and lamenting, the brokenness and the restlessness, and all of this condition that describes one who is unsaved and lost, no matter, like the song says, behind their smiles, Jesus hears their cries. And so though they put on a facade or put on a good face or the best foot forward, God describes their souls in these four portraits. And I want you to see this with me. The first of these portraits we would liken to a barren wilderness. He delivered those in a barren wilderness. Verses 4 through 9. Look at it with me. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. And then here's the turning point. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. That verse 6 is the verse that captivated young Robert Langstrom as he sat knowing that his life was nearing its end and that he was reaping what he had sown and that his lifestyle had cut his life short and he knew that his sin was ever before him. And here he is, and verse 6 just seems to wrap its arms around him, and he can think of nothing else but verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Verse 7, he led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled 
with what is good. So the first portrait of this condition from which God rescued these people, as the poet expresses it, is this picture of being wanderers, uh, lost in a wasteland, hungry, thirsty, uh, despairing. That's their condition. And if you notice, they cried out. Finally, they cried out. And um, it made all the difference. You know, some of you are sitting here this morning and you know that that the miracle of new birth and the transformation of your heart and the, and the change that occurred within you when you said, when you cried out to the Lord, you're sitting here knowing that when that occurred, it happened in an instant. This is not a long, drawn-out process. The power of God in deliverance and the change of a heart that restores that heart to God. Now, of course, obviously there's growth and maturing that goes on in a Christian's life. We're all in that process. But the miracle that brings us from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to that of Christ, happens in a moment. And it's by the power and grace of God's sovereign mercy when he calls us to himself. And so... These people responded. Let's keep moving. The second portrait is that he delivered those in chains of darkness. This is even more graphic. Look at verse 10. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned, despised, the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. And here's the turning point. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of all their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. What a picture of the lost. What a picture of one encased and incarcerated in a life of unbelief and sin. And God reaches in responding to the cry that he stirred in their hearts. You get that, don't you? God is always prior. And even when there's a movement in a person's heart and they turn and cry out to God, that's an evidence that God... It's, it's not an evidence that God's absent. It's an evidence that the Spirit of God is at work within them. And so even the cry, we credit to God. They... Look, they spent their whole lives living this way and they've built themselves a prison house of sin and unbelief to live in. And then, what is it in the midst of all of that that causes a cry from the heart? Why, it's, it's the goodness of God. It's his mercy, right? 
that stirs the heart. How about you? From time to time, you get into a little trouble, don't you? Come on now. We're straight shooters around here. Don't you mess up from time to time or drift back into some old sinful attitude that, and you come back and you cry out to the Lord. And you wonder sometimes if he doesn't look down and lends his ear and says, Tony, you've got to be kidding. You're bringing, you're bringing that same attitude to me again. How many times have you done that? Is that how he responds? No, because the very cry of my heart for restoration and cleansing and restore to me the joy of salvation, that very cry is stirred by God. He's the one doing it. How good is he? Then you're going the opposite direction. And he stirs your heart to turn you back to himself. How good is God? See, I think this whole doctrine of the goodness of God is really quite important. You know, God is all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's all-knowing. He's, he's infinite in his attributes and all. But if, but if he was all of that but not good, he would, it would be terrorizing to approach him. But the psalmist says at the beginning, doesn't he? Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is what? He's good. Well, we've got to keep moving. Let's make haste. The third portrait is that he delivered those in rebellious sickness. Verse 17. The psalmist writes, Fools, because of their rebellious way, and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Through the years, I've been many times at the bedside, either at home, nursing home, or hospital with someone who had been sick for a long time. And I'm not saying that that was the case because of their personal sin, but I know that there does come a point at which all appetite is gone. Even the thought of that dish that they're bringing in almost makes them nauseated. This is descriptive of these people in such dire condition. He says their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. But what happens? Verse 19. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them. You see, that's why I think this poem shouldn't be taken so historically, literally, that we miss the poet's intention, even though I think Israel was delivered and brought back from the north and east and west and south. And I think there's a literalness to the poem, historically. And yet, we know he's talking about spiritual life. These people are in dire condition. They're sick, and they're, lim- and they're languishing in this condition. And it says, verse 20, He sent his word and healed them. Robert Langstrom walked into church, sat in the back, 
heard Psalm 107 read out loud and was riveted by verse 6 and four more t- three more times in the same psalm. What happened, Robert? No, you didn't deserve God's mercy. You didn't deserve his grace. You had rebelled. You had stiffened your neck. You had led other young people astray into a, life, a lifestyle of utter ungodliness to pay the consequences. Robert, you didn't deserve it. But that day, Robert Langstrom learned something, didn't he? To give thanks to the Lord because he is good. I'm not, but he is, Robert came to understand. And then by the grace of God, Robert was changed and became good. Didn't Jesus say this? That the, that, that the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what's good. But the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what's evil. Robert, Lang- Robert Langstrom walked into church an evil man with an evil heart and he walked out a changed man and his heart began to flow with that which was good. God is so wonderful. And you know, if you're saved and you're, you've come to know Christ and you're in union with him and you belong to him, you're one of the redeemed. And if that's the case, you're really not much different than that young man. You needed the same miracle of new birth that that young man needed. Whether your lifestyle resembled his or not is beside the point. But look there again. He sent his word and he healed them, verse 20, and delivered them from their, de- their, de- their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. You know, in many ways, this whole psalm is telling us why we get together. You ever really think about it? I don't know what you were doing last week. I have no idea what conversations went on behind your walls. I don't know how your work day went. I don't know what's going on. But I know this. We've come here because we're the redeemed of the Lord, and the redeemed of the Lord are supposed to say so. And we do say so. We express it in songs of worship and thanks to God. The world may not understand us because they've not experienced that change of heart. But that's why we gather, right? Is to be his people and to express our gratitude to him because the Lord is good. Well, the fourth one there in verses 23 through 32 is he delivered those in perilous seas. And some have, you know, I have read where among the things that can be frightening, very few, if any, are more frightening than to be aboard ship in the midst of a raging storm with no land in sight, pitched and tossed, and know that you're going down. Even plane crashes, when a plane is, when they, uh, when they announce to the passengers we're going down, 
you're, there's something that happens. You'll go into shock from what I've read. You kind of go into shock and you just do what you almost mindlessly uh, strap yourself in or reach under your, your, uh, your seat to find uh, something to float on. And, uh, you know, you go through the same steps even if you're flying over the desert. Um, but you kind of go into shock because you know that upon impact, it's over. But when you're at sea and days upon days of being pitched and tossed. My brother who served in the Vietnam War with the Navy told me of being aboard ship in the midst of a storm and literally seeing 100-foot waves that you would rise and then you would drop down underneath and everybody's throwing up and everybody's sick and everybody's just a mess and uh, just how frightening and how monstrous the ocean when it's angry can be. And God is likening the lost person, their soul, to be in this kind of precarious condition. Whether they feel it or know it or not, God says, this is how I see where you're at. You don't see the danger you're in apart from my mercy and my salvation. So look there at verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and we're at their wits' end. That's telling language, isn't it? Of how precarious it is to live a life independent of God and to live a life away from the presence of the Lord and conscious fellowship with Him. I love that. Where, where, where'd my, hang on, can you, that bulletin, I, I put a quote in it this week, and I hope you took time to read it. But I, I, just, I, I just so agree with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to this quote from your bulletin. It's on the upper right-hand corner. Pastor Spurgeon said this, and it, it's personal to him. He said, if I were asked what is the sweetest experience within the whole compass of human feeling, I should not speak of a sense of power in prayer or abundant revelation or rapturous joys or conquest over evil spirits. But I should mention as the most exquisite delight of my being, this is, this is Spurgeon, seasoned veteran Spurgeon, as the most exquisite delight of my being, a condition of conscious dependence upon God. And really, brothers and sisters, that's the goal of our Christian life. If you were to ask me after these 40 years of ministry, Pastor, what is if you could describe the Christian life 
reduce it into a single statement, what would that statement be? Would it be, get all of my I's dotted, my T's crossed, and make sure every single doctrine is squeaky clean? No, because I doubt in this lifetime that will ever be true of me. This is a very big book, and there's a lot of wealth and wonders in it that I have yet to see. Um, what would the Christian life really be if you could describe it? And here's what I think it is. It's basically what Spurgeon said. It is to rise in the morning and hit the pillow at night with the goal that from rising to the pillow, God, you would enable me to live in unbroken fellowship with Jesus Christ. Robert Murray McShane one time wrote these incredible words. I have them pinned up over at my office because they're so humbling to me. And he was only in his 30s when he wrote them, but he was a radiant pastor with a heart that burned for Christ. And Robert Murray McShane said these words. He said, In my experience, no living person on earth is more real to me than Jesus Christ. And that might sound like highfalutin stuff, but you know what? It's really not. Because if you know him, he's closer to you than you are to yourself. <laughs> My little granddaughter, Maddie, she awakened me this morning. My, it's so nice to have Ben and Aaron here in, in church. My son, Ben, and his wife. And the, their two kids, little Maddie and Jack, are back in the nursery. But Maddie came in and crawled up in bed by Grandpa this morning. And, and we were laughing about it last night. Maddie has no boundary. When, it, you know, when you talk to somebody, uh, there are certain people you can talk to. And they, as you're talking with them, for some reason, their comforts, they keep stepping closer. And you're saying, yeah, that's nice. You step back a little, and they step closer. And it seems like they need to smell your breath or they can't really communicate. And there are people that have wider comfort zones, and they just prefer to talk from about five feet away. Maddie has no zone whatsoever. Little Maddie, she comes right up nose to nose and puts her hands right on my face and pats my cheeks and talks to me face to face. And as I was reflecting on that, I was sharing with, with my son and daughter-in-law this morning that the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for that we translate the presence of God is the word face. When David, Psalm 139 says, whither shall I go from thy presence? What he's saying is, oh God, I live before your face. And at times when I'm hurting, at times when I'm like this psalmist and these four portraits, it's me that's crying out. God puts his face right up next to your face, pats your cheeks. That's how close he is to you. The face of God. And by the way, when little Tony, 
looks up into the face of God. He has a much bigger face than I do. And it would be a frightening face were it not the fact, let's give thanks for the Lord is good. It's a good face. It's a kind face. It's a face of understanding. It's a face filled with grace and with mercy. And so they cried out in verse 28 in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea hushed. And then they were glad because they were quiet. (laughs) That's all they wanted. Days and days of this raging storm at sea, just to have it quiet. Have you ever been in such turmoil that you just long for just, could could I just have some reprieve? Could I have a day that just feels quiet, quiet, peace, God's peace? Sure you have. And so verse 30 says, then they were glad because they were quiet. And so he guided them to their desired haven. Again, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. Now, I had a third point, but we're not going to do it. It's not really necessary. But the psalm kind of ends with, with these contrasts. And the picturesque language really is saying that if you will humble yourself and cry out, God will lift you up. If you think you can handle it independently and do it your own way, God will humble you. And that's kind of what it's about. And so the psalm ends. Verse 43. Who is wise? It ends with a question and an exhortation. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things. And what? Consider. Consider the loving kindness of the Lord. Aren't you grateful for his loving kindness? So undeserved by us and yet poured out on us. Now listen, if, if you're sitting here this morning and you hear me say so undeserved by us and somehow that raises something in your soul and you think, well, speak for yourself, Pastor. You have a problem we could, uh, for discussion on another occasion. If you think you deserve the grace of God. That's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction. The grace of God comes to you and it comes to me. Pouring out of his infinite heart and redemptive love. Aren't you glad? To some degree or other, your life has experienced something depicted in those four portraits of God's redeeming grace. 
Fanny, Fanny Crosby celebrated it in this way. And uh, you know the old hymn, but I'm just going to read it and have you stand and close with me in prayer. But she wrote these words, redeemed, she said. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, <laughs> redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by his infinite mercy, his child, forever I am. Seven times in one hymn verse, the word redeemed. And this psalm began by saying, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? And let me remind you on the way out, Sally uh, is hoping you'll sign up and help out with our upcoming barbecue. What are, what are we barbecuing, by the way, Sally? Hamburgers. hamburgers. Yeah, good, it was hamburgers. Yeah, sweet baby, uh, sweet rays, baby sauce, or... Uh, okay. <laughs> Isn't it amazing, really? I can look out at you and think, Lord, my experience of your goodness is being experienced by all my brethren. It's a common experience among us, isn't it? <laughs> the goodness of the Lord. Well, let's pray and thank you. How we thank you, Lord, for Psalm 107. We thank you for miracles of saving grace like Robert Langston. Thank you for using him as your voice and a testimony to a people enslaved, a people wandering in the desert, a people being pitched and tossed by a storm, a moral, spiritual storm. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you that on that day we cry out to you at the beginning and throughout our lives. Every time our hearts are stirred to cry out to you, you were already there previously, stirring our hearts to cry out to you. Thank you, Lord. And as we conclude our time together this morning, Lord, again, we lift up the Hanson family. We thank you for all the years that you blessed Wyland with. My goodness, 70 years together serving you, he and Elizabeth. And God, as we pray for all that family, perhaps more than anyone, we pray for Elizabeth today. And we wonder, we wonder, Lord, not only for Elizabeth, but we think about ourselves here. Which of us gets to go home next? Who of us gets to stand faultless with great joy before the throne of God next? Which of us gets to behold the glory of Christ next? Thank you, Lord. Our lives are yours. We lay no claim to them because they belong to you. 
And we ask you, Lord, to make it our experience more and more that we live in conscious dependence upon you. And then help us to remember this psalm and to remember to point friends who don't know you to Christ, to encourage them to cry out to the Lord that you might deliver them. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you for our time together today. May each of us go in your blessing, go in your encouragement, and go having sense that we've been fed by the word of God today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be back, by the way. Good to see you.